Welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I'm Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know, we have three types of podcasts. Our 10-minute lesson series, where we give a very brief overview of about 8 to 15 minutes on a policy area that we think that you might need to know, just covering on the most important topics. Our seminar series, where we take a look back at some of our best conferences and seminars and listen to presentations from experts such as Tony Fahey on housing and Anne Pettifor on a Green New Deal. And then we have our interview series, where we speak to experts on a range of policy issues. Today's episode is one of those, and it's on the topic of environmental justice. I'm delighted to be joined on this topic by Cloda Daly of Community Law and Mediation, Saiv O'Neill of DCU, and Dermot Tormey of DCU, who have together authored a report on environmental justice and marginalisation. I really hope you enjoy it. So, thank you so much, Saiv, Dermot and Cloda. It's absolutely brilliant to have you here. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks, Claire. Thanks, thanks for having us here. Brilliant. Um, so if I can start off, and this is a general question to the group, um, what is environmental justice? So, the, you know, there's been a huge discussion in recent years around climate change and climate action. But, you know, is it the same thing or is this a completely separate piece? What, what would you define environmental justice as? <laughs> so I'm picking on Clodagh first if I can. Okay, sure. Um, so I might let either Dermot or Saiv kind of explain maybe our approach to environmental justice in this new report that they authored. Um, but I might explain, I suppose, where community law and mediation is coming from and why we set up the Centre for Environmental Justice and why... Rose Waller, CEO, was seeing a need for this kind of research to be done. So um, community law and mediation was set up in 1975 as part of the campaign for civil legal aid. And we assist today more than 4,000 people every year through the provision of free legal advice, education and mediation services. And we campaign as well for law reform. Um, and our services are focused on issues which disproportionately impact those experiencing issues like poverty, social exclusion or inequality. So issues like housing, social welfare, employment, equality, and then access to services like healthcare or education. And then in February of 2021, Community Law and Mediation expanded its work into the area of environmental justice by setting up Ireland's first Centre for Environmental Justice. And what brought CLM into this space was the fact that environmental issues were coming into CLM's work, so in through the legal clinics in particular, because people's homes are being impacted through environmental issues like flooding, people's health is being impacted due to issues like air pollution. And then CLM was also alert to the potential unfairness of climate action measures on disadvantaged groups. So through issues like job loss or energy poverty, for example, or where policies aren't sufficiently poverty or equality proofed. And so the centre was kind of, I suppose, bounded in a decade, which requires us to meet very unforgiving climate deadlines. But it was coming at it from a more uh, human rights and social justice background and kind of acknowledging that the climate crisis isn't only environmental in nature, it's a health, housing, jobs, debt, and I suppose ultimately a human crisis that is not being equally borne by all. 
And that's because those who have contributed least to the problem are at risk of being most impacted and because those who are most disadvantaged within our communities have the fewest choices about where and how they live, have fewer resources to cope with pollution or the challenges of climate change and have less visibility in the shaping of policy responses. Um, so that's kind of what brought community law mediation into that space and why we set up the centre. So it's been open for just over a year now. And so we're so happy to have partnered with DCU um, on this report. And I might pass over now to either Dermot or Sai to explain how they consider environmental justice. Well, thank you very much for that and, and happy anniversary to the centre. Um, so yes, Sai or, or Dermot, if you could answer in relation to, I suppose, the, the broader uh, definition around environmental justice, please. Sure. Yeah, I, I can come in on that. And uh, Colette, thanks very much for, for having us, us on. Um, and, and maybe just to um, fill in the picture following on what Cloda said. Um, so DCU uh, is uh, a neighbour of CLMs in, in North Dublin. We're geographically close, but I think we, we share a lot of the same values. DCU is committed to inclusion uh, and access to education. We have the longest running and largest access to education program in, in the country. So social justice is um, part of the, the the DNA, if you like, of, of DCU. And that, that, that can sound like I'm reading off a press release, but you know, I, I think it is something that if you come onto our campus, you, you, you see visibly. Um, so it is, it is a core part of what we, what we do in, in DCU. And then over the last few years, we've increasingly moved into the area of uh, environment and climate research and, and teaching. And so uh, the, the, the project was funded by the Irish Research Council under a scheme called New Foundations, which tries to bring together NGOs and academic researchers. And this was around the time that CLM was setting up its Centre for Environmental Justice. Uh, and so it just seemed like, like a perfect uh, match to, to bring together uh, CLM's focus on social justice and, and environmental justice and, and on our side to bring together our, our interest and commitment to environmental sustainability on the one hand and, and social justice and, and inclusion on, on the other. Um, and, and so the report that we launched uh, this week was the, the, the output of that, that research project. Um, in terms of how we understand um, environmental justice, we, we're interested in um, the, the, the burdens and benefits of, of environment, both environmental degradation and policies to respond to environmental degradation uh, and to see those shared equitably across uh, society. Uh, and you know, stemming from a concern that they are currently not shared uh, equitably uh, across society. So that's that's one side of us. And then the other side is participation in decision making. So so uh, needing to see a commitment that uh, that communities and individuals uh, have access to um to participation and access to, to justice um, in, in decision-making on, on matters that, that concern them from, from an environmental perspective. Saib, has Dermot covered everything there? Would you like to pop in? Yeah, uh, thanks very much, Colette. I might just add to what uh, Dermot and Clode have said by just talking a little bit more about how we look at environmental justice in terms of the report. Um, so there's quite a big 
emerging literature on this in the academic community. Um, environmental justice movements sprung up in the United States because there was a kind of intuition uh, back in the 1970s that uh, particularly African-American communities or people of colour were experiencing a much higher burden of pollution. And so they conducted some research that, that quantified this and demonstrated that there was a clear correlation between citing decisions of toxic uh, industries uh, into low income and uh, you know, neighborhoods that were predominantly uh, non-white. So this kind of led to a huge uh, kind of shift in environmental activism in the United States that has slowly, slowly spread around the world, uh, where the kind of dimension of racism and inequality was coming into the environmental policy debate, which has tended to be perceived as a kind of middle class interest that you only start taking care of your environment when your income levels reach a certain threshold. So, um, so jumping back to the present then, um, in, in, in Ireland, we decided to look at the sort of distribution of environmental justice um, through three separate, separate lenses. The first one is a kind of distributive lens. So what is the spatial distribution of environmental burdens? And you know, there you're looking at issues like water quality, traffic and uh, air quality, um, energy poverty, uh, basically anything that can be measured and mapped. So we have a lot of information through the census data and then the work that Pubble did in devising a kind of index of deprivation around that. That's very much fine grained, looking at small electoral areas of just a couple of hundred households. And it, we know from that information that we can map inequality and deprivation quite well in Ireland. But what we don't do is map environmental indicators on top of that. So in fact, even though we have lots of data about environmental quality in Ireland, that's required to be collected by the agencies, the EPA and local authorities and, and other agencies as well, there's very little effort made to map those data sets onto the data sets that we have uh, around social inequality. And that means, for example, that uh, people might be aware that they're living in a low income neighborhood, but they have no idea about their flood risk. They have no idea about what the water pollution levels are like or drinking water, whether it's good or bad, whether there's a kind of tendency to kind of impose certain kinds of environmental burdens in those areas. So that information is lacking. And one of the main recommendations we have in the report is that the, the various bodies that collect data need to make a much bigger effort to correlate the two things. So we have a much better understanding of whether there is an uh, unequal or inequitable distribution of these burdens. And intuitively, we can see that, and there have been some kind of uh, uh, pockets of research that look into, for example, tree cover and green spaces in urban areas. And people in low income neighborhoods, particularly in Dublin city centre, have already counted the trees in their area and they can tell you that they have, you know, basically maybe one tree or less than a couple of meters per person of green space in comparison to middle class suburbs. So that's 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 something we've kind of accepted and tolerated in Irish public policy for too long. And we've associated middle class neighborhoods with higher environmental quality, but that's completely unnecessary. Uh, environmental quality shouldn't be a privilege, but a right that everybody should enjoy. And good quality public spaces and amenities benefit everybody, but particularly people who are physically vulnerable for whatever reason.
Now, the other two areas, uh, uh, you know, Cloda and Dermot have already looked at in terms of procedural justice. What way can communities and households and individuals engage in environmental decision making, whether it's through the planning system or if there's a particular grievance that they have, particular burden, how can they pursue that? And the planning system now requires you to pay fees, which is a barrier for people on low income. But as you go up the decision-making process, it becomes even more exclusive. And, you know, we've quite a lot of recommendations around access to justice, because uh, in fact, Ireland is one of, if not the most expensive countries in Europe in which to take uh, a court case uh, in defence of the environment. There are very narrow grounds on which uh, cases can be cost protected and CLM have done a lot of work in trying to, you know, make the case for a much broader approach to civil legal aid that would uh, uh, empower communities to be involved all the way through the system in shaping decision making about their environment. In addition to that, we could look at reforming the court system as well. We could even look at setting up a new type of environmental court that's much more open access and cheaper uh, in general. And the final area that we looked at in the report is we kind of loosely group it around issues to do with recognition. And this is the idea that some people are marginalised, not because of where they live, but because of their identity, because they're collective identity, perhaps. And this applies particularly to traveller community and also to migrant communities and immigrants who are, you know, struggling to, uh, you know, integrate into Irish society and often end up in areas of very poor accommodation, overcrowding and very limited access to public services, uh, especially, you know, green space. And uh, the Roma community in particular experiences acute deprivation and is completely locked out of decision making. And of course, that applies to people in direct provision as well. And again, it's the thing of like, if you're really burdened with uh, poverty and the stress of being in those situations, you really are locked out of the kind of decision-making processes that are inviting you to think about long-term, you know, uh, uh, visions for a community. So we have a number of uh, recommendations that I suppose relate to how better to recognise those identities and to be much more inclusive in our approach to environmental decision-making. And it isn't explicitly addressed in the report, but I, having a background in civil society, I think that that's a recommendation that civil society needs to take on board just as much as public authorities. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I thank you for that. It was incredibly comprehensive. Um, in terms of, I suppose, you, you all mentioned to some extent fuel poverty. Um, and that, you know, the, the, the policy response on that seems to be almost like the, the quick hit, which is retrofitting. So retrofitting, retrofit, um, and, you know, that will solve people's uh, fuel poverty crisis or, you know, increase the fuel allowance by a couple of pence and that'll, that'll solve it. But when we look at the recently announced new kind of retrofitting schemes, we see we have three schemes. Very welcome that there is one that's kind of free in terms of upfront costs for people on social welfare. But for some reason, the years are different. So, you know, it's it's for houses that are built pre-2006, um, whereas for everything else, it's houses that are built for the other two pre-2011. Now, there are a lot, as we all know, there are a lot of difficulties with houses that were built at the very height of the Celtic Tiger that won't be included 
in the scheme for the very, very low income households. Similarly, then for the other two types of schemes, because there is that upfront payment, it's essentially a, a well, an upward wealth transfer because only those who can afford to have accumulated the cost of actually doing the retrofit upfront will benefit from that or will be able to benefit from that. Um, and that, I suppose, brings me to a point that you made, uh, Saive, when you were talking about, you know, that the, I suppose, the intersectionality of all of this, that there are communities who who aren't being asked or aren't being engaged with, um, but they're already dealing with the, the burden and the stresses of poverty. And that kind of brings me to the, the question of, well, how do you engage with communities um, who are most impacted, who are most affected, when you know that their priority may be just putting food on the table, just getting the heating on, um, rather than the the amount of trees or the amount of space to try and, and, and form that picture that you've all so eloquently formed here on the ground with communities to try and make people see those links in terms of this is why your heating bill is so high and this is what you could potentially do about it and this is what would you know this is how your kids might benefit from it. Would you like me to address that perhaps? Uh, I know that uh, Claude I'm sure can speak a lot to the issues around energy poverty as well. Um, the, the first thing to say is that the retrofitting plans are very much driven by the climate action agenda. And one of the critiques we have in the report is that um, because it's driven by the sort of overall decarbonisation targets, it hasn't been properly poverty proofed. So the reason for those two different years will be because of the different building regulations and the effort that's required to bring buildings of different standards up to a B2, which is the kind of focus of the national retrofit plan. And from an energy and climate point of view, that those distinctions do make a certain amount of sense. But for the individual householder, they make no sense at all. I mean, your house is either cold and badly insulated or it isn't, you know, like so regardless of when it's built. And as we know, there are many houses that are kind of recently built, but built to a much lower standard than they could have been or should have been. So the reality is that the interventions have to be tailored to the needs of the householder and the building. You have to have a kind of bespoke package that's appropriate. Um, so the one-stop shop model is, is a good approach, but that's going to apply to people who own their properties. One of the things we've recommended in the report, and it, it came uh, as from, from Cloda, actually, you might want to speak to a Cloda, is a, rec you know, a recommendation from St. Vincent de Paul that what we need are community energy advisors, people who can talk to people about not just the practical measures that they can take to reduce their uh, heating bills and their uh, electricity bills. For example, using smart meters, that's something I'm passionate about. It only makes a tiny difference to your bill, but it is a way that we can take control of some part of the uh, electricity costs but the the thing is to to offer that advice and to be present in the community to be working with householders but also to point people to the possible schemes that they might be eligible for because this is um, a very complex area and it, it it just befuddles people a lot of older people who are particularly vulnerable to fuel and energy poverty um don't want to make big interventions to their houses because regardless of their tenure type, because it's a, it's a, it's a disruption, they're afraid of strangers coming in, they're afraid of uh, tradespeople. So we need those hand-holding community workers to, to guide people through the process. But perhaps Cloda might want to speak to some of that. Um, yeah, sure. Thanks, Saif. Um, It's a really great question, Colette, because it's something that we have been 
giving a lot of consideration since the centre was opened as to how we can best reach communities who need our services most. Um, and especially because a key part of our work is free legal advice and potentially representation as well. It's very hard to um, explain, I suppose, or to let people know that we offer this clinic and that the um, issue that a person might be experiencing, first of all, is it environmental in nature? Um, and I like for me, it's been very interesting coming into an organization that isn't historically environmental, like Salem doesn't have a environmental background. It's new to this space, whereas I was working more in the environmental and climate space for the last few years. Um, and it's it has shown me so much how siloed the environmental and climate space has been um, just because I think it's so scientific. It's so um, expert dominated that um, a lot of people feel very intimidated to come into that space. So um, around our legal advice clinics, yeah, there's an issue, first of all, with um, helping people recognize that the issue they're experiencing might actually be an environmental issue and that there might be a legal remedy um, for that problem. And so we were so lucky to have partnered with illustrator Owen Wheelahan, who created these really beautiful um, community resources that just show the links between climate change and health and climate change and housing. Um, and we deliberately made it into a graphic that was visual um, because we are hoping to reach people also who might not uh, speak English as their first language or who may have literacy issues. Um, and I think that Saive also touched on something really important there, um, Saive, when you spoke about the need for community workers, because we do a lot of training as well in this space, and we're trying to capacity build more organizations to come in. But what we don't really want to do is to be going to organizations and communities that are already stretched and already dealing with a lot of crises and saying, well, there's actually another crisis. There's another um, one for you. <laughs> And it's existential. And we want you to worry about this now as well. What we really want to do is to kind of show people how their skills and their knowledge is so relevant and needs to be brought to the table. And community workers in particular are just so important. They're experts in, facil in um, facilitative and participatory processes. Um, you don't need to be an expert, for example, on carbon budgets to have a role in this. Um, so I think that that's uh, really key issue and then I think the other thing is just resourcing groups and communities and helping communities kind of see where they can um, work together or where citizens can even join uh, campaigns so another project that we're working on with Environmental Justice Network Ireland is called the Manual for Environmental Justice so we're developing a website which is um, I hope it's okay to plug this sorry sure, <laughs> but um, it's it's uh, it's going to operate kind of like a digital toolkit which will um, link so citizens and communities with environmental experts. So be that um, scientists or ecologists or biologists or marine scientists. Um, it will link communities and citizens with existing climate and environmental campaigns. Um, and then it will do this across the island of Ireland because you know borders don't exist in nature. So um, it's good for us to try and link um, with you know, efforts in Northern Ireland where possible because we, we do share the same environment. Um, and can I so, ask, yeah. Clodagh, is hmm. part of the issue perhaps something that, again, I've touched on where she said only, you know, people only start taking care of your environment when you reach a certain threshold and it's almost seen as the preserve of the middle classes. 
is that almost like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy where you know if you if if it's seen as being the preserve of those with higher incomes then those on lower incomes just don't see it as being for them so i think that that has been the perception and i i think even like there might be some research suggesting that is that right so but um I, I don't think that that is actually true. Like in, in the trainings that we've done with community groups, um, communities are very aware of um, their local environmental issues. They're very aware of how environmental issues impact them and their communities. But I think it's, um, I suppose it's an issue of, it's, it's that kind of conflict between end of the world versus the end of the month. Yeah. And I think as well, there is fear of um, climate and environmental policy as potentially um, making people's lives worse or potentially resulting in sort of austerity measures. And so, yeah, I think that that's where we're coming from in CLM um, with trying to bring kind of a rights-based approach and making sure that um, climate and environmental policy, you know, not only you know, doesn't worsen existing inequalities, but actually results in material improvements to people's lives within the short term. Um, but to be honest, like with all of the groups that we've engaged with in communities as well, like they've been very, uh, very cognizant and aware of how environmental issues are impacting them. I do think that there is um, kind of a sense of intimidation in coming into this space from a policy point of view, or even, you know, engaging in the decision-making processes um well there's a lot happening in the space in the first place there's a lot to try and feed into um and also because again it's quite expert dominated the language can be quite abstract and yeah, um, yeah that, that, that doesn't help I really like that expression that you just used you know the the end of the world versus the end of the month I think that's that's definitely one that I may borrow um but it's 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 very telling and I think it's it perfectly encapsulates what people are, are dealing with really when they're engaged in this kind of issue. Um, moving on to the report, Environmental Justice in Ireland, Key Dimensions of Environmental and Climate Injustice Experienced by Vulnerable and Marginalised Communities. Um, Saive brought us through, I suppose, the, the background on why that this came about. Um, I'd like to then go, go through the, some of the, the findings and the recommendations, if I can, in terms of of this report that has been very re- recently launched. Maybe, Colette, I, I can come in on that, may, maybe on the finding side, and, and I could hand over then to Sive for, for some of the recommendations. And and um, Sive touched on some of these themes um, in, the, uh, in, in her earlier remarks. Um, so so the, the, the aim, one of the aims of the, the project was, as Sive articulated earlier, really to to do a mapping, to, to find out what, what evidence is out there and what do we know and what do we not know. And as I've said earlier, we discovered that we don't know a lot more than what, what we do know. And so um, one of the findings, that, and which leads on to a recommendation, is that we need to do a lot more work to simply find out you know, the, the, the facts on, on the ground. Um, but in terms of other um, key findings, um, we we found you know, v- very topical 
at at the moment around rising rising energy costs, which you know is a an evolving landscape that has pr- r- transformed quite radically since we started this this project, and you know not surprisingly, um, in the absence of income supports, um, that uh, energy poverty is likely to to increase. Um, we, we found that we know very little about the impacts of air pollution on specific cohorts, on specific age groups and communities that experience high rates of energy poverty and traffic uh, pollution. So, you know, again, we have good aggregate data or reasonable aggregate data, but we don't don't know so much about spe- uh, impacts on uh, specific uh, groups. Um, transport poverty, we, we looked at that as well. Um, it exacerbates inequality and deprivation by locking people who can't afford a car uh, into, uh, lock, locks them out of jobs, public amenities, other services. Um, travelers experience particularly high levels of energy poverty and health inequalities. Flood damage disproportionately hurts low-income ho- households. Migrants, coming back to that theme of participation, migrants experience uh, particular barriers to participation and discrimination um, and are excluded from the uh, from environmental decision making. And, and then one other theme to note is the housing crisis and, and the impact that that has uh, on uh, you know, marginalized and vulnerable communities uh, in terms of um, increasing rents, gentrification, and uh, driving up uh, rent rent costs further. Absolutely. Um, and in terms then of, of addressing all of this, you said you were going to, in a very gentlemanly fashion, hand over to Hive to, to, to deal with it. Um, you know, how what are the recommendations in terms of how we might address all of these things that are being identified? Because much of what Dermot is talking about has been spoken about in, in other spaces, not necessarily linked to, to climate justice, for example, or environmental justice, but certainly things like fuel poverty. You've, you've pointed out the fact that you know, we have a massive cost of living crisis at the moment, and, and that's predominantly driven by energy uh, costs increasing. Um, you know, we, we know there's been persistent and pervasive problems in terms of the, the adequacy of housing um, for or an accommodation for members of the traveling community, for Roma, you know, how can we address this through that environmental justice lens? Yeah, absolutely. We have a, a series of recommendations, starting with the fact that we need more information, data collection and more accessible information information provision by the the state bodies that do collect information. Uh, We noted that, you know, the census is happening at the moment and we also have quarterly household surveys, but the questions that are asked in these could be reviewed to ensure that we're collecting the kind of information that would help us make those correlations between environmental quality and social injustice. Um, We've a series of recommendations around resourcing access to justice uh, to make it easier for households and communities to participate in environmental decision making. The most urgent of those is really a recommendation that the government should drop the provisions in the Housing and Planning and Development Bill that would restrict access to justice for uh, people who want to challenge 
challenge environmental decisions. And of course, looking at the whole cost structure there, fees for making submissions and uh, rules of standing in courts and a limitation on costs, all of that should be looked at with a view to making public participation uh, broader. The government's intention is to squeeze us out of decision making, which is not the right way to be going about it. In terms of energy and poverty, um, as Jeremy was saying, we were drafting this report mostly um, over the last few months, uh, re really just before Christmas, and the energy costs were already rising at that point, but we, we didn't envisage um, the kind of shock to the uh, global commodity prices that the Russian invasion of Ukraine would lead to. So it has sparked, understandably, uh, an important debate about um, how to tackle energy poverty and the cost of living crisis because we have inflation as well. So if you think about energy poverty, it's driven by the cost of energy, household income and the energy efficiency of the home. So people are being squeezed at two ends, the cost of energy and because their household income is stretched uh, due to the rising cost of food and, and, and other commodities. So really, the government you know, can only intervene at the level of the cost of energy and the energy efficiency of the home if you assume that inflation is pretty much baked in for the next couple of years. Um, and so a lot of focus has been put on, you know, well, maybe we should scrap the carbon tax. I think Sinn Féin is proposing to postpone the uh, planned increases in the carbon tax. But in fact, the carbon tax is only a tiny fraction of the energy cost and it doesn't rise um, with commodity price hikes because it's fixed to the carbon content of the fuel, whereas VAT and excise duties do tend to, to, to rise with the, the price of the fuel itself on international markets. So it is possible for the government to make interventions to you know, curtail those rises by lowering VAT or abolishing it. But in addition to that, we need to look more broadly at other kind of tax reforms. And here I'm speaking really for myself because we didn't have a chance to, to look at these in detail in the report. For example, fossil fuel subsidies currently dwarf the carbon tax receipts. We spend uh, upwards of two billion on fossil fuel subsidies, whereas the carbon tax only brings in uh, a few hundred million. Um, so there's lots of things we can do to rejig our tax system so that we're sending the right signal, but using the revenues to support low-income communities in making the transition. For example, um, you know, excise duty cuts are already three times the total subsidy for EVs. Now, EVs tend to be the preserve of people who are you know, better off who can afford to buy a new car. But if we increase the subsidies for public transport provision, for lowering public transport fees, and for making, you know, community EV hire systems, mobility services much more accessible, I think that would be a better use of public money than just cutting excise duty uh, as a blanket measure. These are, these are topics that I imagine we'll be discussing in great detail in the lead up to the next budget. But the reality is that we can't abandon the climate agenda or environmental agenda because these are only going to make our problems and the costs rise. So we need to tailor the measures that are introduced to protect people from these cost of living hikes in such a way uh, that deliver climate actions at the same time. Absolutely. Um, Dermot, do you have anything to, to add to that? Yeah, I was just going to come in on, on one point following up on, on Sive. And, and as I've said, you know, this is all uh, an evolving and, and quite rapidly evolving space. And, and we didn't anticipate um, what we've seen in the, in the last month or two in terms of 
cost of energy, cost of, of living uh, in the report because of when we were writing it. But um, just w- one thing to add uh, to what Saiv was saying. So um, you know, if we look at how government is responding to the, the, the rise in energy prices, you know, we, we have a, a, you know, a, 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 as things stand, um, an across-the-board contribution to electricity um, price increases that, that every every household is going to get regardless of, of income and the you know reducing um excise duty on 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 fuels um benefits ev- all fuel consumers uh, equally and i think we need if we're concerned with with social justice we need much more targeted uh, approaches and you know I, I know the government said around the the uh, electricity uh, cost supports that it, it was dif- difficult to do it and uh, any other way but I, I really think we need to explore that that further because you know what we're getting in practice is a massive subsidy for the well-off um you know because uh, the well-off consume more uh, and and so I, I I think government needs to look much closer at how to better target those the, those supports uh, to those who really need it. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, in terms then of, you know, we, we've talked about who are most impacted. How can individuals and communities who are most impacted get involved? I mean, I know, Claudia, you talked uh, a bit about, you know, the, the education piece and, and that, that kind of involvement. But how can, if there is somebody listening today, uh, how can they get involved in this in environmental justice piece? Um, so people can get involved with local groups. There's the uh, One Future Network. There's a, like there's a lot of local environmental campaigns. And depending on what age group you are, Fridays for Future do amazing work. They're actually out striking today. There's yeah, to be honest, there's no shortage of um, campaigns that are out there. So if anyone is interested, please do get involved. Like we need um, m- many, many more people um, involved in this movement. Yeah, and I, I think like I, I think it's it's good to be sort of open about you know like it it doesn't matter if you don't have um, a scientific background. Like I I didn't have a scientific background either, and it kind of kept me away from becoming involved in this space for a little bit longer than it should have, because it does feel very kind of, as I said earlier, expert dominated. And we need all kinds of perspectives um, in this movement, we really do. Um, And I would just keep an eye um, for that manual for environmental justice. It's going to be launched um, in September, and then we'll be running trainings as well. So on the 6th of April, we're going to have a training for the National Clean Air Strategy so that's to help people make submissions to that consultation. Um, we're going to have really amazing speakers, Dr. Orla Kelleher um, from UL, who's researching on air quality, um, a researcher from UCC, and also a researcher from the UK Centric Lab. Um, so that will be one to look out for as well. We'll have details on our website and social media soon about that as well. Great, thank you. And Saiv, I know you've been very heavily involved in terms of communities um, that can get involved. What would your recommendations be? Yeah, I'm conscious that the people listening to this podcast are probably active in some way in social justice. And I would say, as someone who's been involved in the climate activism and environmental movement, I would say, join us, but not with a view to just accepting whatever it is that we we do, uh, tell us how we can do it better. Um, Now, Friends of the Earth 
they run the One Future network that Clodagh referred to there. And they're acutely conscious of the need to, um, you know, campaign for environmental justice and climate justice in tandem with, you know, you know, getting better legislation and regulation. And they've been absolutely to the forefront of this globally as well as in Ireland. So I would encourage groups that are active in social justice at community level to reach out because the One Future network is a kind of geographical network. So people come together in their communities from all walks of life, some with no backgrounds in any kind of campaigning whatsoever, and come together and, you know, do what they can uh, with a lot of support and guidance from Friends of the Earth. And the other network is the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition. I used to work for that. Stop Climate Chaos is interesting because it's not just an environmental network. It has development organizations, um, anti- poverty organizations and um, international climate justice groups, as well as environmental groups. So it has a very broad reach. And in addition to that, it has been involved in the SDG coalition and also a new Just uh, Transition Alliance. So I think the idea that the siloed tradition of having social justice over here and environmental justice over there, I think that period is coming to an end and we're all on the same side here. Um, so. But the thing is, we just need to build it into our, our practice, our, the way we work. And now I'm kind of currently in academia, so I'm not as heavily involved in the civil society space. But I can say that the doors on both sides are open and we just need to walk in and uh, work together and, and collaborate at a local level, at a national level more closely. And I see huge potential for building an effective environmental and climate justice movement in Ireland. It's going to be great. Um, I can see Clodagh, for those of you who are listening, Clodagh's clapping. Um, so <laughs> thank you very much for that. Uh, and then my final question to each of you, and I just, I, I'm very conscious of your time. Thank you so much. Um, is if you had a big ask for budget 2023. So I've mentioned kind of the, the, the budget process um, that's, you know, it's, it's already in train, but the budget will be announced in October. Um, what would it be? What would be your big ask? And Dermot, I'll, I'll start with you. Thanks, Colette. Yeah, so I, I, I guess two two things, um, one of which echoes uh, what I said a, a minute ago. Um, uh, so I, I, I think supports... Um, need to be much uh, around energy and, and the cost of living need to be much better targeted uh, in, in budget 2023. Uh, so, so that would be one big uh, ask. And, and then the, my, my other big ask would be, I, I guess, in, 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 the, in the turbulent world in which we're, we're living, that uh, climate and environment doesn't drop off, off the, the, the table, right? You know, so I, I think there's, there's a real risk uh, of of that happening, uh, and so I, I, I you know, I, as uh, was said earlier in, in in the call, we 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 can't uh, afford to forget about climate change. We you know we've run out of time. We've been doing very little for thirty years now, and we we can't afford another lost decade. So we need to keep climate and environment um, central to budget twenty twenty three. Absolutely. I mean, we certainly saw with COVID how everything else can drop off. Um, so yeah, that's a, I think that's a really important point. Thank you so much, uh, Cloda. Yeah, I think um, you know it was interesting for me that the Centre for Environmental Justice opened during COVID. So we saw through COVID, obviously, like that idea of the same storm but different boats, like how certain groups will always fare worse than others during a crisis. 
Um, but the government's initial response to COVID through rent freezes, through eviction bans, and through other protection measures show what can be done to protect the most vulnerable. And I think lessons can be drawn from this and how we respond to climate change. And it was interesting, um, research has shown that public trust in government soared in 2020 as a result of these policies to improve welfare protection during um, the initial COVID crisis. And like data has shown that the government's rapid response to protect living standards um, ensured trust and then as well backing for difficult but necessary health measures. So like that idea that, you know, social cohesion and solidarity are really necessary um, when we're dealing with a national crisis um, like climate change. And we we haven't been working um, a huge amount yet on our budget submission for the next year, but like one issue would definitely be um, expanding the fuel allowance payment like at the moment it's only available for 28 weeks of the year and it needs to be claimed in advance of the winter and it comes out at about 924 euro per year which just doesn't meet households electricity bills um, and I think Social Justice Ireland have done a lot of work on this as well like homes with an energy efficiency rating of about F or G um, could face bills of between two Yep. In the thousands, like 2,400 up to 3,000 and possibly even more now um, with the situation in Ukraine. So, yeah, there's more, I think, that we could say on that, but we are, um, yeah, we'll be working on our budget submission more in the coming months, I suppose. Great. Thank you. And Saif? Great. Um, well, I'm going to just jump on um, the bandwagon here uh, following Cloda and say that I, I think that uh, drastically increasing the fuel allowance is the most direct way we can get income supports into the fuel poor households. Um, I don't see why we shouldn't be doubling it. The amount of money is, is really very small. It always was and uh, barely covered needs even when people's energy costs were lower. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a direct income support and it's totally justified and it reaches the right people, but it could be expanded. Like I don't see why we couldn't expand the thresholds so that people who are actually in full-time employment, for example, who wouldn't be getting a social welfare payment could still apply for it uh, instead of having to go looking for discretionary payments. So I think that that is a direct thing we can do. But at the other end of the system, we have the fossil fuel industry that's also, to a certain extent, benefiting from these uh, rocketing commodity prices. So I think we should look at ways to introduce a windfall tax um, maybe increase the Nora levy so that there isn't any kind of hedging that is just pumping money into the coffers of, of the uh, fossil fuel industry. Um, I think we, we do need to review fossil fuel subsidies. And I think that we should be very slow to delay the introduction of the carbon tax increases. But at the same time, it needs to be part of a package so that it's not perceived to be unjust and, and an additional burden. I also think that the relative impact at a carbon price makes versus the VAT and excise duties needs to be communicated clearly to people because the perception is that fuel is expensive because of carbon taxes. Mm -hmm. And it's actually not the case at all. Um, the reality is we need to accelerate everything we're doing around climate action. We just can't do any of it soon enough. And I think, you know, if we want to head off a situation where the government has to introduce rationing, because that is unthinkable, but the Taoiseach referred to it last week. So that's how serious it is. We need to be ramping up 
everything we can do to improve the standard of the worst housing in Ireland, which is both in the rental sector and in the local authority sector. And we can't do it soon enough. Absolutely. And with that, I would just, just like to thank you so, so much. I could go on for another hour here, but um, maybe in, maybe another time. Uh, thank you so, so much for, for your contributions. It's been fantastic speaking to you today. Thank, thank you, Colette. Thanks so much, Colette. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to check out that report, Environmental Justice in Ireland, Key Dimensions of Environmental and Climate Injustice Experienced by Vulnerable and Marginalised Communities, there is a link in the blurb for this podcast. You can also check it out on the website of Community Law and Mediation and on the DCU website. If you'd like to check out more information around sustainability generally and environmental justice, please do check out our website, www.socialjustice.ie, and go to the sustainability section where you'll find a range of reports, analysis and resources. Until next time, stay safe.